Love you, Jesus. And Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, and he really wants to speak with you today. He wants to communicate his heart to you, but it's going to come wrapped up in the most amazing dimensions of love, right? Ephesians talks about this multidimensional, the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. The love of God is his superpower. Unbelievable, greatest power in the earth. Jesus wants to speak to you out of love today. He's for you. Our theme is around new wine and kingdom innovation. So there's three passages, Mark 2, Matthew 9, and Luke 5. I chose Luke 5 today as the one we'll focus on in the context, but you should know if you studied all three, you would find that all three of them have exactly the same context around them as well. There's a healing of a paralyzed man let down through the roof. There's the calling of Matthew and the party with the tax collectors at Matthew's house. There's significant context around these words that I'll read to you about new wine and kingdom innovation. And I'm, I'm going to encourage you today, we're going to do a dual-level message here. I hope that you can hang with both sides of that, but maybe one or the other will be most meaningful to you. When you read the Bible for all it's worth, I want you to understand that it's an incredible revelation on every page of God in his relationship. So it won't be so much about Matthew or about a paralyzed man, but about the relationship of God to a paralyzed man, which can be like his relationship toward you or, or toward Matthew, which can be like God's relationship to you. So the revelation on every page of scripture is God, right? He reveals himself through his holy eternal word. Now, there's always a personal element to the scriptures because God is a personal God and he made you personally and he knows the number of hairs on your head and he loves you deeply and amazingly individually and he loves the world and he's the savior of the world as we sang earlier and he's doing a movement of the gospel. He said to Abraham, I want to bless you so that you'll bless all the nations. He said in his great commission, I want to make you and send you so you make disciples of all nations. So there's always an element in the text where God is doing something with you, for you, personal, and he's doing a movement. There's a multiplier. There's an exponential effect that's bigger than that. And we're going to look at both sides of that in this text today in Luke chapter 5. Reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39 in the end of the chapter. Jesus is being questioned about fasting. They said to him, and we'll come back to who the they is, the they said to him, right? We're in the middle of a stream of one of Jesus' days of ministry on earth. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after t drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, ah, 
The old is better. Sounds the reading of God's holy word, but we're going to stay in the context. Why is Jesus talking like this? Why is he telling a parable in, with these people on that day? What is Jesus going for here? New wine is the, the picture he's bringing forward. He's, going, he's saying that there's a lot of new wine. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. This is in the first year of Jesus' ministry. He is bringing a lot of innovation. He is bringing a lot of change. We're going to see some of that in the context. People are not prepared for the level of change that Jesus is bringing. And it's dynamic. It's exponential. There are people just hanging with their mouths open, like in awe of Jesus most of the time. It was an incredible experience. You know, John says, John, the writer of the gospel says, you know, Meeting Jesus was just like receiving one blessing after another. It was just grace upon grace. He says in John chapter 1, he was full of grace and truth. It was just a fire hydrant experience. And that's powerful because God was doing something great in the earth. And he started in very specific places with specific people in Israel at this time, in the fullness of time. But he was doing something that reaches even to you today, right? To all of us. He was multiplying a movement. Thank God for the movement because it reaches all the way to us here in Colorado Springs today. You're familiar with the New Testament era, the Old Testament era. They drank a lot more wine. It was a vineyard type of place, and they drank wine. I don't drink wine personally, but we just celebrated the cup of the Lord's blessing. They drank wine at the Lord's Supper. It was part of their everyday experience, but he filled it with new meaning, this cup. You know, the forgiveness of your sins in my blood. You know, he was taking an ordinary everyday thing and filling it with extraordinary supernatural heavenly meaning in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. So Jesus, of course, you remember at the, the first miracle he does according to John in the gospel is a wedding feast. He turns water into wine, right? It's his first innovation, his first supernatural revelation that he's from somewhere other than Nazareth. He's from above. This is the Messiah, right? Some began to see early on. What about that, right? What about the new wine that was created by Jesus there? It was new wine. It was previously water just a couple minutes ago and now taken to the leader of the wedding banquet, tasting it. Wow, this is the best wine. You saved the best for last? They ran out of wine. Jesus created wine out of water, right? It was new wine, but it was the very best. That's part of Jesus' first year of ministry. The disciples of Jesus, watching Jesus, hearing Jesus talk about new wine here, would have remembered immediately the wedding feast at Cana, right? So should we. Context matters. There's also a sense here that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 9, it's the disciples of John that asked the question, the they who asked the question about fasting, it's the disciples of John are said to have asked the question. They said, you know, we often fast and pray, but the Pharisees are not. You know, and the Pharisees are, disciples are fasting and praying, but you're not. Why aren't your disciples fasting and praying? Why aren't they, why is there this extraordinary freedom that we see in you and your disciples? What's going on with the freedom? We have a heavy burden of religious ritual practices Laws, commands to keep. Why are you so free? 
That's part of what you need to see here. Jesus was introducing and showing a way of freedom, not just in himself, but he had brought freedom from heaven, but he was bringing freedom to other people. So let's look at the context here because you're going to understand a little more why, you know, remember that John the Baptist, you can read it in John chapter 3, was saying about Jesus, I am not the one. The religious leaders of Jerusalem were coming out, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Saying, no, I'm not the one. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water for the forgiveness of sins. I call to repentance. I'm calling for reform. I'm calling for reformation to make straight paths for the Messiah. But I'm not the Messiah. One comes after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Look for him. Right? So John is saying, I must decrease. He must increase. I'm like the friend of the bridegroom who hears the voice of the bridegroom. And is satisfied. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Good phrase, John the Baptist, greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, Old Testament. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Who's the bride today? Anybody want to raise your hand? The bride belongs to the bridegroom. John was not the bridegroom, but he was a friend of the bridegroom. And he said, I'm just happy to hear his voice in the crowd, in the mix. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he was pointing to the Messiah, right? It's, think about that. These are John's disciples saying, but yet, you know, why do we have all these rules and we're following all these strict things and rituals and, you know, suffering with our fasting practically, but you have such freedom. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. And nobody fasts at a wedding, have you noticed? It's a feast day. It's not a fast day at a wedding. The bridegroom is here, right? Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's revealing himself to the people in this context. So here's why we have this conversation going on about new wine and kingdom innovation. It's because of what Jesus did a little bit earlier in that day. And remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the same context. So early in the ministry of Jesus in the first year, Jesus heals a paralytic. So let me read a bit of that. One day when Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, this is that same day when he was teaching, there's all these Pharisees and religious leaders from Jerusalem, Judea, and every village. It's a, it's a convention of Pharisees watching Jesus, looking at him. And they were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. And some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. But, but they couldn't find a way in. It was so crowded. They couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd. And they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Hold on. He just did that in front of the whole Pharisee convention from Jerusalem. The man is paralyzed. He's healing all the sick. That's what's going on. That's an innovation in and of itself. Jesus is bringing healing from heaven. He had come from heaven. He brought his world with him. Jesus launches, I can track, at least 12 major revolutions through the gospel, through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit, his second coming, these key six elements of the gospel, the six days of new creation work that God is doing in Christ. Jesus is bringing on day one the healing revolution. 
It's a love revolution. It's a healing revolution. It's a deliverance revolution from evil spirits. It's a discipleship revolution. Day one of Jesus' gospel ministry. So there is an enormous amount of innovation. People have never, ever seen what they're seeing in Jesus. Their mouths are hanging open. Jesus is the chief innovation officer of heaven, if you will. And he has come to earth and he's bringing one innovation after another, one blessing after another. It's, it's astonishing to people. He's healing everyone who's sick, everyone in crowds of people. He ministered to multitudes. Rough estimate, maybe 20 to 30,000 people in three years, Jesus healed and taught his fishermen and tax collectors to do the same. The revolution has never stopped. He came from heaven bringing a revolution of healing and deliverance from evil spirits and forgiveness. So he's healing the sick. He would have expected a healing of his body, but Jesus sees deeper, right? Jesus is looking deeper. So let me talk to you for a moment before we continue with the text just about this time that we're living in. Pandemic global epidemic of disease. Probably fair to say, and I got a lot of friends around the world, not one person not affected right now by this same disease on the earth, right? COVID, every nation, every person, we've lost loved ones. We've, we've been sick ourselves. We've fought disease. We're wearing masks. We're adjusting. We lost jobs. People have moved. There's you know, we've had kids at home, schools shut down, sports teams closed. It's endless, the impacts. That's just in our nation, but it's worse in other nations. Not probably one person in the whole world right now not touched by this disease. So what is Jesus doing? What is the revelation of Jesus when the whole world is touched by disease? I think it's important to see that in this text, Jesus went deeper he says, you don't just have a physical problem. 2020 global world. You don't just have an emotional or social problem. You have a spiritual problem. Because if you look up Ancestry.com and death, you know, we've been stalked by the fear of death globally right now, which is actually a really powerful context for people who know about the resurrection of Jesus to preach the gospel to all the creation. It's a perfect context when the entire world is gripped by the fear of death. But if you look up Ancestry.com, jokingly, okay, you would see that the father of death is disease. Sickness leads to death. If it's not resisted or arrested, it will lead to death. The flu can kill people and does every year if it isn't arrested by immune systems and sometimes medical help and prayers of healing, right? So who's the grandfather of death and the father of disease in Ancestry.com? Mentioned in the text. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus goes to the root he kills off grandpa. He's going to take care of the man's disease, whatever is causing him paralysis, and keep him from death, which probably would be inevitable as the body's breaking down. He says, I see deeper. Do you think Jesus sees deeper right now in your world? Do you think Jesus sees that you all have a terminal illness in the world? Every human being has a terminal illness. It's called sin. Sin is anything contrary to the nature and the character of God, right? He defines what's holy, what's right, based on his eternal nature and character. So this is personal for Jesus when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He's talking about the Father. I came from heaven. 
this is not that. This doesn't belong. This is not part of this. The, the reason your body is breaking down in this case is because sin is having its way. The fall is causing you to be not able to walk. And I can do something about sin. That's the shocking thing to the Pharisee convention is that Jesus personally says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Very powerful moment. I think in the context, again, we'll come to the multiplier movement conversation in a moment here, but right now let's talk about personal forgiveness for a moment. In the context of new wine and new wineskin, Jesus brings a forgiveness revolution into the world. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. He is personally, Jesus is personally forgiving people's sins, and it's having dramatic results in their life. Remember what it feels like to be forgiven of your sins, right? I hope today you had an experience of that, the, the cleansing, the lightness, the burden rolls away, the sense of shame and guilt, tears, freedom, right? I ministering to a woman named Shannon from New Jersey, right? She had about 19 years of severe abuse, atheist parents and all kinds of abuse and brokenness, then got deep into Satanism as a late teenager and the witchcraft and the occult for the next 19 years. She's... 38 years old in the middle of the pandemic last August when Jesus reaches her through one, actually many, streaming messages from churches. She's on her way. She's researching how to kill herself. The pain is too much. She's desperately broken and alone, right? And Jesus meets her in her lonely little room in New Jersey, and she gets a cleansing of her sins from Jesus. Jesus has authority to forgive her sins, and he does, and she is renewed. She doesn't know one Christian has only met all of you through, you know, television and, and you know, her phone and streaming service. Thank God you all went to worship because the whole world has a terminal illness with sin, and they're all going to die in their sins, and you started broadcasting like crazy when you couldn't meet together, right? And God was using that in hundreds of lives, thousands, millions globally right now. I've heard so much, but... In Shannon's life, it was the game changer. She meets Jesus. She doesn't want to kill herself anymore, but she's still very, very alone. Lives in the house with her atheist mother in New Jersey, who's 70. And it was brokenness, and her life in witchcraft and the occult had been messed up. But now that she was a Jesus follower, every night she was assaulted by demons. For nine months before I met her, she was attacked by demons etches of Roman numerals under her skin, choking. It was a nightly battle, an assault on this one little Christian woman who Jesus loved, named Shannon. And then one of our very liberal pastors in the RCA, and I mean that, he just retired today. God bless, I won't mention his name or his church. He's just finishing, and that was partly because of Shannon coming into the church a bit that he's retiring today. It's a good thing. But he had always time, she said, to have all afternoon, you know, celebrations of gay marriages in New Jersey. They're a rainbow flying church, and I'm not against that. Jesus would have loved those people. He loves sinners. You're going to see it in the text in a moment. But he never would baptize her. The born-again believer, and she was coming to that church, and that's nearby her house, and it's all she knew. Came into one of our little Reformed churches, and, and this pastor, God bless him, introduced me. So you know a lot more about this demon thing than I do. Been a pastor. He's about to retire. He's lived his entire life in ministry. He doesn't know anything about demons, how to minister to them. Not great followership. Jesus brought a deliverance revolution. 
in two, you know, 2,000 years ago. It should be core curriculum training. It was for his first disciples, but it wasn't for us. He went all the way through seminary, all the way through ministry, and couldn't help her. But God, in his grace, made a connection. We've had this powerful thing, you know, since about April this year. Tremendous deliverance, freedom. She's walking. She got baptized in the Holy Spirit before she got baptized in water. We got her baptized in water just in August. Tremendous freedom. She writes very articulately. She was a writer in the world before, and she has beautiful ways of expressing this forgiveness, this, the cleansing, the burden that's been rolled away, how she feels so sealed, how she's loved. She had an encounter with the love of God where she had so much self-hatred. I mean, her parents didn't love her. You understand? They put a severed head, Hollywood style, not a real one, severed head in her bed since age two that she had to sleep with every night. They tortured their kid, right? This is the kind of, and all the other kinds of abuse, but Jesus finds her, meets her, rescues her from all this darkness, and, and uh, he's a mighty deliverer, mighty savior. She has this encounter with the love of God and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus knew she needed most was to experience his love that took out the self-hatred broke off the boundary. It was so personal. So the forgiveness of sins that Jesus speaks about here, do you need to receive personally the forgiveness of sins? Do you have something that's from the fall, that's from the created world, that's broken, that is bigger in your eyes than Jesus Christ? Give it over to him. He's the savior of the world. He can take away your sin. He has authority on earth to forgive your sin. I was having lunch yesterday with Shangri-La, I got my hair cut here in Colorado Springs and over in Union Square and uh, great conversation with my waitress and God was in that moment, you know, and just eventually asked, like, why are you here in town? I said, well, I'm preaching here at Springs Community Church tomorrow. And we, so I said, I got a question, you know, and uh, we talked already about some other things about Michigan and all that where I live and, and, and I said, what's harder for you? Because I found out that she got baptized in 2010. Okay, so she's a fairly new Christian, and I said, what's harder for you, to, to receive forgiveness yourself for the stuff you've done or to give forgiveness to others when you really don't think they deserve it, right? She said, you know, here's what I've been learning. It's a good word from the waitress at Shangri-La. She says, the more I receive forgiveness myself every day from Jesus, see how desert, you know, needing, needy I am of personal forgiveness from him, the more I'm able to give it to others. I don't hold back on others when I'm receiving it. When I stop receiving, I stop giving. It's a powerful insight, right? He's right in the Luke 5 text. She was a, a great example from your community in that. Personal forgiveness. If you need Jesus to personally forgive you, good news. He does that. That's his forgiveness revolution that began to roll out here in front of everybody's eyes. Now, people are offended at this. Who does he think he is? It's blasphemy. God alone can forgive sin. We're the religious leaders, the elite from Jerusalem. They couldn't see the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form in Jesus. They missed the Messiah while he was with them and right in front of them, but they resisted. They showed up with a strong reaction. They were going to hold to the truths of the fathers, the, you know, teachings of the elders, the heritage of Israel, they were holding deeply to their uh, monotheism, and they couldn't see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fully active here. But Jesus is healing the sick man. In order, he says, what are you thinking, these evil things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Easier to say that, for sure. Or get up and walk. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. They were filled with awe. Their mouths are hanging open again. The forgiveness revolution, the healing revolution of Jesus just blowing them away. But they were receptive. They were leaning in. They were answering different questions in their heart. And I'm going to come to a few of those in a moment. But just see the context here in the scripture itself so you can keep coming back to it. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything. The tax collector left everything of his trade that was most offensive to the Jewish people in Capernaum there where they're at. You know, so offensive. Jesus calls him personally, and he comes. Then Levi holds a big banquet, a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors come. So this is, uh, you know, others were eating with them, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are still looking that day. And the others that belong to their sect and complain to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is anathema. These people are unholy. They are unhealthy. They are sinners. They are rejecting God and his law and his word. Stay away from them. Far away from them. The further you're away from them, the holier you are, was their flawed idea of holiness. Jesus brought a holiness revolution from heaven, and he brings it right into the room with the sinners. And listen to what Jesus answers. He says, not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not saying the Pharisees are righteous. He's just saying, you must have receptivity. You must have openness. You must be willing to receive from heaven, or you're going to miss the appointment. You're rejecting your doctor appointment. You don't show up and the great physician can't heal you, but Jesus, again, loving sinners. He's the forgiver of sinners. That's who he came for. His forgiveness revolution is getting bigger here as he goes. So there's some context here that I want us to think about. Maybe for you, we'll take one more personal shot. Maybe it's harder for you today to forgive someone else. The fact that Jesus would be willing to forgive so-and-so in your life when you consider him basically lower than a tax collector or a prostitute because of what they did to you, you want nothing to do with that kind of grace and kindness and forgiveness toward them, right? Maybe that's harder for you to forgive others right now. I'm saying Jesus is talking to you. He loves you, and he's talking to you. He's saying, don't let the poison kill you, the poison of unforgiveness. Stop drinking from that bitter cup. It's got poison in it. Don't drink from the cup of unforgiveness. The cup of forgiveness in his blood, completely the opposite. So he's leading us. He's inviting you to experience his love, to be transformed. So here's what, uh, Beyond the personal level in the text, there's a lot in that context. That's when Jesus says to them with the question about fasting, he starts talking to them. Can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he was, is with them? And he gives this illustration of old and new cloth and old and new wineskins. And he's really trying to get people to receive new wine. 
Jesus is essentially saying, I have so, so much more to give. People of earth, I came from heaven, right? The unshakable kingdom of heaven. There's nothing lacking in heaven. Perfection. I've come from my Father and I have it all to give to you. Would you open up and receive? I got so much new wine. I talked about 12 revolutions, the love revolution, the healing revolution, the forgiveness revolution, the... the uh, Deliverance revolution, a discipleship revolution, which is going on to this day, the multiplication of disciples that Jesus began in these pages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, going on to this day in exponential ways, you know, worship revolution, an authority revolution, an ability revolution at Pentecost, the pouring out the Holy Spirit, and on and on and on, an accountability revolution. These are all out of the gospel. We can look at 12 disciple shifts or 12 revolutions of Jesus some other time, but I'm just saying there's so much more to give, right? Here you see the healing revolution and the forgiveness revolution of Jesus coming out into the open. He's saying, ah, oh, people, there's so much new wine. Don't stick to what's familiar. Don't consider my new wine to be too different or to be too unfamiliar that you would stick with the old way. I've come from heaven to bring so much more. And he's really asking for receptivity in this passage. He's calling it out, saying he's, he's working with people in their hearts and minds. He's taking something familiar, clothes and wine and wineskins, and teaching them to embrace the unfamiliar, the kingdom of heaven, the new wine of his love, of his abundance, that God has so much more to give than they've been willing to receive, though many in this passage are receiving from Jesus. So let's talk about this at that second tier, the other way, the multiplication movement of Jesus. And so uh, I have this uh, illustration. Maybe we'll pop it on the screen to help you just kind of track along with me. When we talk about Jesus being the chief innovation officer, he was bringing the kingdom of heaven from earth. That is his main teaching. You know this as you have a great godly pastor in Eric, right? The message of Jesus, the big idea is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come in his life, in his ministry. Heaven has come near. Father is ready to help you. Kingdom here. Heaven here. Kingdom now, not just in the future when you die. Kingdom already able to be experienced, not fully like in the restoration of all things, but already here, already here in Luke 5. Amazing, right? So there's a reaction or a response. You can choose your response. Hopefully you don't get stuck in a reaction to the innovations of Jesus. The chief innovation officer of heaven comes revealing so much more new wine. He wants you to put it in new wineskins. Receive it, put it in new structures, put it into your life, leave room for there to be a reshaping of your priorities and your, your daily life so that more new wine from heaven can flow in. We tend to see five groups, innovators, we're going to leave Jesus in that category here today. He will be the chief innovation officer of heaven. It's usually about 2.5% of the group in an organization that's bringing innovation, bringing a change dynamic through a whole group. The next group, early adopters, usually about 13.5% of an organizational group, leaning in early. And we're going to talk about these different groups in a moment. Early majority, uh, kind of the crest of the wave, tipping point. That's, uh, there's usually about 34% in that group. The late majority, another 34%. And the laggards, about 16% as well. And people just have a response. We see it in Luke 5 to the new thing. 
So here's what I want you to think about today in terms of the movement dynamic of Jesus. When he's trying to get his gospel of the kingdom of heaven, the good news that heaven is here now. Heaven has more new wine for the nations to receive. Trying to get that from your doorstep to the ends of the earth. What is the, here's, a, here's this, this theme I want you to hear from this morning's message. That every person can be met by Jesus where they are. As the man on the mat, paralyzed, as Matthew at his booth and his friends in Matthew's home, every person can be met by Jesus where they are as Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven, all of its innovations to earth. So he'll find you where you are, but he'll offer you innovation from heaven, change from what you got of the shaking, crumbling kingdoms of this earth, offering you from his unshakable kingdom of heaven. That's Hebrews 12 language. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. But Jesus brings the kingdom innovations to earth, and we will be helped if we ask better questions in order to get better answers, all right? So we'll click through these better questions to get better answers. You want better answers, right? Your questions are important. Jesus loves you. He wants to talk with you. He'll meet you where you are. People had questions when he did what he did. When he said, son, your sins are forgiven, they went, what is this? This is new. And then when he said, get up and walk, take your mat, others were going, what is this? This is new. They were responding to the newness of the kingdom of God. Now, pause for a moment. Jesus wasn't doing something here out of character with God, right? I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who made all things new in creation, right? And then in Revelation, behold, I am making all things new, the restoration of all things. Genesis to Revelation, we have a God who's making new things. He's a creative, innovative God. Isaiah 43 talks about the people of Israel not relating to their God as a chief innovation officer of heaven, right? They don't receive his new things, and they're getting stuck in all kinds of weak and broken and lesser things of this fallen world, the shaking world, instead of the unshakable kingdom that he was offering. And so they said, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? It springs up now among you, in the wasteland, in the dry spot, in the desert. Like, are we in a dry place in the world? Are we in a deadly wasteland? Yes. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up now. Do you not perceive it? Like, where are your eyes? Are you able to look and perceive as your gaze on God and you glance at the problems? Or are you gazing at the problems of this world that are overwhelming and maybe glance at God once in a while? It matters. Where are your eyes? Do you not perceive it? It's going to make a difference how you're looking at God in terms of how you respond here. So here's better questions. So to use the language of today, wine tasting and then wine testing. We got... Four questions on both sides, wine tasting and wine testing. The Lord wants to give you new wine. He wants to create an abundance of new wine, like at the wedding feast of Cana. He has revolutions for the whole planet he's trying to bring. He'd like you to drink deeply of them. Drink the new wine. Keep tasting new wine. It's good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Test, test his goodness. Test his greatness out. He has more for you. And then there's some wine testing questions that are helpful because there is an active opponent. While you're trying to drink from the new wine of the kingdom, there is a devil and his angels that are trying to destroy you. They come to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus said in John 10 and 10. 
And he came so that you might have abundant life. He's trying to give you abundant life. They're trying to steal, kill, and destroy you. You have a choice. So remember in the Old Testament, there was a role next to a king anyway, a person of great authority, the role of the cupbearer, right? What was the job of the cupbearer next to the king? Drink the wine first before the king drinks it. Taste it. Test it. Any poison today? Nope. Cupbearer's fine. King drinks the wine. You understand? Wine testing. Because we have an active opponent that likes to poison the well of the streams of living water, likes to work against the church, likes, likes to destroy your life, we have to find ways to test the wine. So four questions that relate to this little diagram in terms of how we respond to the new wine of the kingdom that God is bringing into our world. So here's the first question. Jesus is the chief innovation officer. He asks a different question. He says, since it's new, me declaring forgiveness for a paralyzed man on earth in Capernaum today, since it's new, is it you, Father? What's the answer to that? Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. He only said what he heard his father saying. Jesus was such union life, unbroken communion in the power of the Holy Spirit. When he was responding to the innovation of heaven, it was because he saw it was the Father. He had such connection to God. So that was a different question. Since it's new, is it you, Lord? Is it you? And his perception moved him to be the innovation officer in this passage, bringing heaven to earth. Right? The next group, let's look in this text. Five different questions. Since it's new, is it true? Is it true? Let's take the man and his four friends who let him down through the roof. He starts receiving forgiveness of his sins. The burden comes off of him. He experiences a cleansing, the touch of the Lord. He believes the forgiveness of the Lord. Maybe the four friends who are looking at him intently and going like, whoa, that wasn't what we expected, but they're watching, see his joy. Maybe he starts to weep. They hear that Jesus hit the root, took out grandpa. So that the next thing could be this disease is going to go down. But they were filled with faith. But they were responding. Their question was different. Early adopters, since it's new, this forgiveness of sins, is it true? And they watched and saw evidence that it was a true forgiveness of sins. He, this man, this, this friend was probably well known in the community. Maybe for his sin and maybe for his par, you know, paralysis. But he was forgiven. He had received something from the Lord, and that forgiveness was leading to all kinds of other healing in his life. So the next group, I'll ask the early majority, since it's new, does it work? That's where Jesus goes next in the passage, I believe. He's going for a movement here so that you would have Luke chapter 5 in your Bible, or Matthew chapter 9, by the way, written by Matthew, who's in the text next, as the tax collector redeemed by Jesus. He's in the next section here. But here's what the early majority asked. Since it's new, does it work? What does Jesus say with the questions that's coming up? Like, can he really forgive sins? Jesus says, listen, in order that you may know, here's my epistemology, so that you can know that you know that you know how you know it, I will demonstrate, show and tell with his physical body. When I say to him, get up and walk, when he walks, You'll see the outward visible sign that that works, so you'll know that the forgiveness works, the inward invisible revolution that I'm bringing, right? He, he, he worked with them, right? So now he's trying to capture the whole house, if you will. I think he had the man and his four friends at hello. 
They were early adopters. Now he's going for the next group. He's sweeping the room. Remember, it's a packed house. That's why he had to be let down through the roof. There's a crowd there, and there's the Pharisee convention there. And he's, they're grumbling, blasphemy. How dare he say this? Only God can forgive sins. He's God. You missed the point. Now he's taking the room with him. Let me show you. This works. The forgiveness of sins, the healing revolution, it works. And get up and walk, and the man walks out. It's powerful, right? Early majority gets swept in. They ask a different question. Since it's new, does it work? Those are good questions as we encounter new things with our God who brings new wine into our world. The next group, the late majority, we probably see best in the next passage with Levi. It's in the same day. It's the next thing that happens. It's before the wine, wineskin talk that he gives to all of us. So late majority says, since it's new, my real question is, will it last? Now, this isn't a cynical question. It's because the late majority hold things for 40 years, and that's good. They're the holders and establishers of culture. If people, if you're that person in this case, and again, in different innovations, you'll be at different places on this spectrum in different innovations, but sometimes I'm a late majority guy, and I'm asking, yeah, is it going to last? Now, that's a different kind of question. It's a good question. But I'm not going to hold it long term if it's not, if it's just a fleeting, you know, fancy thing. And so Jesus, I think, goes there next and he calls Matthew. So I like to say that one day in the, in the walk of Jesus on earth, the savior of the world, trying to reach hundreds of millions of people, eventually billions of us with the gospel, he thought the most important thing that the father was showing him to do was to call Matthew out of a tax collector's booth. That was his single most important thing to do right then. At the moment, that was deeply personal for Matthew, but it didn't make a lot of sense in terms of movement. It made a lot of people angry, a lot of people grumbling, but that was what God was doing here. Jesus was doing the late majority move so that you, again, have Luke 5 in your text for you today to learn his movement dynamics. They say, since it's new, will it last? They saw the forgiveness of a man, sinner, Matthew and his friends at the banquet, they saw it, and it started to last and last, and Matthew stayed with him, was one of the 12 for all those days of public ministry that were to follow, a couple more years, they saw it lasting, so they start holding on longer, like this thing lasts, and then when they see Matthew write a gospel, probably someday, if they're still alive, and Matthew was, you know, maybe they're old men and women by then, and they see how it lasts, and they're saying, hold on, hold on to this message of Jesus, he's the savior of the world, he can bring forgiveness of sin, so Again, the last group, uh, there's resistors in almost any situation, resistance, laggards. Doesn't mean they won't come along later, but since it's new, I'm against it is the response. Since, I, since it's new, I'm against it. Notice it's not a question. It's a statement. They'd be better off to ask one of the other questions. Since it's new, is it you, Lord? Since it's new, is it true? Since it's new, is it, does, it, does it work? Since it's new, will it last? Better questions when you're facing the innovations of the kingdom of heaven. Ask better questions to get better answers, right? Here they're not asking a question, they're making a statement, since it's new, I'm against it. I'm against it, it's personal. I'm holding to the other, the old wine that's familiar, this is different, I don't like it. And let me just soften this. I've been there, you've been there, in different innovations, different moments, like whoa, I was the last to the party on some things, you know, in my family situation, like, ooh, I did not see that turning out that way, you know, right? I thought, sure, that was a mistake, but willing to be wrong, it's a good characteristic. Uh, willing to repent, willing to, re you know, renew our mind in a new direction. So, 
Paul is a great example of one of the greatest resistors in the New Testament. He was a laggard. He fought the hardest against the new wine of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Paul did, right? Who writes you, you know, like two-thirds of the New Testament as he plants churches and speaks to them, right? As a gift, laggards can come around. You need a little more personal persuasion on the way to Damascus by Jesus. But, you know, in the early church, he needed to see a lot more evidence. He needed to see Stephen, you know, being martyred dying and still looking up to heaven, seeing Jesus. I mean, he needed to see a lot. He needed to see that the body of Jesus could not be found, though we looked for it hard. We looked hard for that body. We needed that body from his crucified body. We had to find his body. He couldn't find the body. Irritated him, I'm sure, all the way to Damascus. And then it's like, there's the body. Oh my, glorified resurrection, evidence of the new heavens and the new earth. There's the body of Jesus. Oh my, I was looking for it. A laggard. A resistor. He wasn't asking questions. He's making a lot of statements now, turns, becomes one of the greatest proponents of Christianity. So don't beat up on the laggards. Jesus was dealing gently with them. The question that was asked about new wine or that he speaks to new wine, new clothes, he's using logic. He's taking the familiar to teach them about the unfamiliar, the kingdom of heaven, the new innovations of God. That's what he's doing there. And I think it's very, very beautiful what he does. He's patient. He's gently instructing, and he's still gently instructing us. If we're slow on the trigger with his innovations, he's still calling you to say, hey, think about this. Think about the connection. New wine, new clothes. Don't put new wine in old wineskins. You'll break them both, lose them both. So very quickly, four wine testing questions to ask. Again, uh, you can go into more depth, but it's fairly direct. Direct. Does it glorify God? If you're testing to see whether an innovation has poison in it from the enemy's attack, does it glorify God? It's the glory test. The glory test is work looking for worship. Does it lead people toward the living God or away from the living God? It's a worship test. The glory test. Does it glorify God? That's a wine testing question. Ask better questions to get better answers when you're dealing with the chief innovation of officer, when you're bringing, when you're dealing with heaven coming to earth, the gospel bringing so much change. You need to be both a wine taster and a wine tester. Does it glorify God? Second, does it align with the word of God? Does it agree with the revealed word of God? It's a word test and there you're looking for truth and the poison would be heresy or false teaching. You're weeding that out. Does it glorify God? A worship test. Does it, does it align with the word of God? Does it agree with the word of God already revealed supernatural revelation? It's a, it's, a wisdom, it's a truth test watching out for false teaching. Third test, does it, it's a body test, right? Does the body confirm, spirit-filled leaders in the New Testament church, does others in the body confirm this is true? This lines up as a wisdom test based on their experience already with the kingdom of heaven. They're testing for wisdom. They're watching out for counterfeits. They also know the ways and schemes of the enemy, and they're looking for counterfeits, recognizing wisdom from above. That's a body test. Does the body confirm this innovation is of the Lord? And the fourth one is, uh, where's my fourth one? Does it bear good fruit? The fruit test. Does it bear good fruit? Again, this is over time. Testing. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know them by their fruit. How to test false disciples, false prophets is by their fruit. Got to know them. And so that's the thing. A glory test, a word test, a 
fruit test, a body test. The fruit test is say, does it bear good fruit? There's an, is there an obedience in it or does it bring immorality? And so think about those tests, ask better questions when you meet this Jesus that's so full of change, so full of innovation, so full of blessing that to meet Jesus, the first disciple says, was to just receive one blessing after another. One innovation after another. One shocking new gift from the Father after another. I pray that you have that kind of intimacy, that kind of a relationship with this, this Jesus. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your great, great love. Thank you for how you walk with us in our world. You came from heaven to earth to show us the way. Thank you, Lord. You were not playing it safe. Thank you that you came and lived all out in the open, right in front of paralyzed men and tax collectors and Pharisee conventions. Thank you that you were unashamed to be all about the kingdom of heaven and bringing grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. Let us love you more. Let us receive more from you, trust you more. Let us be great wine testers and wine tasters in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.